The Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday is from the book of Romans, the seventh chapter, beginning at the 14th verse. Now we know that the law is spiritual, but what I am, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have desired to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to rise for the gospel if you're so inclined. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Matthew, the 11th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. O grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Monuments dot the landscape. And each monument has a story to tell. Some monuments speak of heroes, heroes of a country. Other monuments speak of tragic events that happened in a country or in a city. They speak of values that we share. And sometimes they remind us of values that we disdain. Monuments speak of progression, where we once were and now how we progress to where we are. And other times, monuments speak of regression, where we are and where we wish we could return. Monuments can fill us with ire. And we've certainly seen that in the streets of the United States these last few weeks. But other times, monuments fill us with delight. Monuments can be a source of shame 
but they can also be a fountain of pride. Monuments often embody the values of a nation, of a state, of a city. And monuments shed light on history, both the good and, yes, even the bad. Monuments represent oftentimes the scars of a nation, but monuments also reflect hope for the future. In the United States, there are monuments that dot the landscape, just like they do in other, other countries of the world. But what monuments come to mind here in the United States of America? Well, one of the first monuments that comes to my mind is the Statue of Liberty, the mother of exiles. Thousands of immigrants have come into this country passing the Statue of Liberty, and they've come here hoping for a better future. And people all around the world see the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of freedom, freedom that people around the world desire for themselves. I think of the monument of the Lincoln Memorial. I've stood at the base. I've looked up at the 16th President of the United States of America, somebody who championed democracy. And that whole Lincoln Memorial is a symbol of American civil rights, the movement. There's been many a speech made there emphasizing the need for a democratic society where all are treated equal. I've seen the Washington Monument, maybe you have too. It embodies the awe and the respect and the gratitude that the nation feels for the founding fathers. Founding fathers who were far from perfect. In fact, they were filled with flaws. And yet founding fathers who God used to lay the foundation stones of this nation. I've had my picture taken with Mount, at the Mount Rushmore. How majestic is that? And again, Mount Rushmore is a symbol of freedom and hope for people of all cultures and all backgrounds. And then there's the Crazy Horse Memorial that's not too far away from Mount Rushmore. And it's a symbol of the freedom of the Native American spirit and reminds us of their history in this land one that precedes ours. I've seen the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. It has the words of the book of Leviticus, chapter 2510, written on it. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And then one I haven't seen, but one that I came across as I was preparing this sermon, was the Teardrop Memorial in Bayonne, New Jersey, and I hope I said the city correctly. It was a gift given by the Russian government to the American people back after 9-11. And it reminds the whole world of the worldwide struggle we have against terrorism. Those are just some of the monuments, memorials, some most that I've seen, the one that I haven't. I'm sure that you have your own memorials and monuments that come to mind as you reflect on those very important milestones in your own life in which those monuments represent. Even in Grand Rapids, there are monuments everywhere. 
I mean, Sandra and I, you know, we live close to the downtown, and we walk out onto Monroe Street, and as we make our way for our daily walk or our every other day walk, we pass a monument called the Adulation, the Future of Science. It's one of the more recent monuments. It remembers three women, three women who were researchers. I'm going to get their names right. Pearl Kendrick, Grace Elderling, and research assistant Lonnie Clinton-Gordon. These three women helped create the vaccine for the whooping cough in the 1940s. And then as we make our way past that monument, we get to Reverend Lyman Parks. Reverend Lyman Parks, the first African-American mayor in Grand Rapids, who served as mayor from 1971 to 1976. And I'm sure if we dug into his history, we'd see that he had quite a wonderful history of that as he served God's people as a pastor in his community as well. Sometimes we pass the Anna Bissell statue, the memorial in her memory. She was the former CEO of the Bissell Corporation. And then, of course, we make our way to Rosa Parks Square, the first lady of civil rights, the mother of the freedom movement, and all that she stands for. We make our way across the Blue Bridge as we cross the Grand River. And the Blue Bridge is the oldest railroad bridge in the city. It was built in 1892. And it speaks of another era, but it tells part of the story, doesn't it, of this city. We get across the bridge, and we look up at Chief Noonday, 17-foot statue of this Chief Noonday who led the Grand River Band of Ottawa Indians and was instrumental in helping open the West Michigan for settlement. And then we always get to the park that I always have to say, Sandra, how do you pronounce that? I hope I pronounce it right. Abanawan. Did I say that right? Abanawan. Close enough? Getting it from the locals here because I'm relatively new. But you know, that was the site, the 6.5 acre site of a Native American village. And the name of that park means resting place. Speaks of another era, doesn't it, of this city. And then as we walk past there, we, or we're right there at that park, we see the Spirit of Solidarity, which is a monument of the great furniture strike of 1911. Impressive to see. And then, of course, you're right there at the Gerald Ford Museum. And Gerald Ford seven feet high monument of him reminds us of his contributions to this nation and certainly one of the most beloved sons of this community and then we continue to make our way past the fishing ladder and then we get to the sixth street bridge and that has a history of itself and then we walk into our own building which is a historical landmark it's a monument in itself it reminds us of the furniture industry and the importance of that industry in this city those are just some of the monuments that we pass. I could have come up with others. And there's like monuments all over the city that speak about this city. It tells a story. It's another chapter. And that's why, you know, it's so unfortunate and misguided, very short-sighted, when rioters topple these monuments, trying to erase a chapter of the life, the history of this city or this country that they don't like. It's like reading a book. I've read many a books where I wish I could rip the chapters out of the book because I didn't like it. But it's part of the book. It's part of the story. It, the story builds on the story. It tells us about who we are. Helps us understand who we are, where we've been, where we're going, where we might be. 
Well, each monument has its own lesson to tell. And I would encourage you to make it a project to go out and visit every single monument here in this city and just stand there and see what story unfolds. Well, the same is true for monuments that are mentioned in the Bible. God's people set up monuments in various parts of their earthly sojourn. And like other monuments, they tell something about history, his story, God's story. And over the next few Sundays, we are going to focus our attention on some of the monuments that we find in the Bible. And as we do so, I think God is going to give us some monumental lessons. That's what I've entitled this sermon series, Monumental Lessons. Now, if you are at home and you happen to have your Bible nearby, I encourage you to open up to the book of Joshua, the fourth chapter, and there we read. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. And so Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, in the middle of the Jordan. And each of you is to take a stone on, on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. And in the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones are a memorial, a monument to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried, them over, them. They carried over with them these stones to their camp where they put them down, and Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they're there to this day. These stones are a memorial to the people of Israel forever. This monument of twelve stones at Gilgal is a lesson, isn't it? It expresses a monumental lesson to the people of Israel. First and foremost, this monument reminds the people of Israel of God's faithfulness to them when they were unfaithful to him. When they looked at that monument, they not only thought about the fact that God had dried up the the river of Jordan so that they could walk across it, and not get their feet stuck in the mud and so on, and their, all the carts that they were carrying along, or going along with them, and then led them over into the promised land. It wasn't just that that they remembered, but they also remembered the 40 years that they were wandering around in the wilderness. They remembered all of the shame that they had brought upon themselves. And I'm sure they would have loved to erase that memory but they could not. I mean, they would have remembered how a whole generation of Israelites died in the desert because of their rebellion against God. 
they would remember the moaning and the groaning and the griping and the complaining that they issued up to God regularly for the fact that he wasn't properly taking care of their needs. They would have remembered all of the times that they moaned and groaned and complained about the leaders, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. They would have remembered the idolatry that they committed, even though God had been so good to them. You know, they're worshiping some golden calf. They would have remembered in particular individuals like Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons who were really quite corrupt priests who eventually, you know, died because of their disobedience to the Lord, struck down. They would have remembered Korah and Daphne and Abirum who led an uprising against Moses. They didn't like his leadership and make a long story short because you can read about it in number 16. The whole earth swallowed those three men and their families and they perished. They would have remembered to their shame the venomous snakes, that whole incident where they were grumbling against God once again and God said enough of this. And he sends venomous snakes and the snakes started to bite the people and the people were dying and they finally went to Moses and said, please spare us. Please ask God to be merciful to us. And so Moses intervened on, and interceded on their behalf and the people were spared as they looked to this bronze snake that was lifted up on a pole. Yes, those 12 stones, that monument at Gilgal was really a memory of shame for them. But it was also a memory. It was also a monument of God's fidelity to them. In verse 6, it says, this monument will serve as a sign among you. And so as they looked at that monument and they thought about their own shame, they also would have thought about God's faithfulness to them. They would have thought about the fact that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It reminded them of the parting of the Red Sea. Remember when, they, when he parted the Red Sea so they could escape the Egyptians? They would have remembered how God provided them with manna and quail and water from a rock as they wandered around the wilderness. They would have remembered also the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. They would have remembered God's jealous wrath for them, but they also would have remembered his patience and his love, and yes, his forgiveness. They would remember the Day of Atonement. They would remember the Feast of Jubilee. They would remember that bronze snake that they asked that Moses raised up so that they could look at it and be healed. As they looked at that monument, they remembered their imperfect leaders. Yes, Moses was far from perfect. Aaron and Miriam were certainly far from perfect. But yet God used those leaders to faithfully lead the people into the promised land. They would have remembered, yes, the parting of the Jordan River. And they would have remembered and been thankful for the fact that God led them from slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey. Monumental lessons. That's what the monument of Gilgal gave to the people of Israel. Monumental lessons. Lessons that brought shame, heartache, hopefully repentance in their heart, but also monuments that testified to God's faithfulness and love and patience for them. Monumental lessons to be remembered, rehearsed, and recited. And that leads me to the next point that's made in our text. This monument at Gilgal was also to be a basis of sharing their faith with their children. 
In two places in this chapter that I read to you, parents are reminded of their responsibility for the communication of God's word and God's calling on their children from generation to generation. In verses 6 and 7, it reads, In the future, when your children ask, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And in verse 21, it says, And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them. Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on the dry ground. See, if the monument's not there, children can't ask those questions, can they? They can't ask the questions. It can't be a teachable moment, both for the shame and for God's fidelity. But no, instead, as they look at those, at those stones, at that monument in Gilgal, the people say, well, son, daughter, God is a faithful God. And he did exactly what he promised that he would do. To our, for our forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised that we would be in a promised land, and here we are. And these stones testify to the fact that God is faithful to all of his promises. You see, God doesn't want us to forget. He didn't want them to forget. He doesn't want us to forget that he is faithful to his people. The memorial stones were also not only a sign, a signpost for the children, future generations, but there are also the stones at Gilgal, the monument there, was also a signpost for the whole world, for the lost world. In verse 24, we read, God did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. See, God's heart is always for all people. His heart isn't just for the people of Israel in this text. His heart is that all the people of the world would see this monument, hear of this monument, and recognize what an amazing, miraculous God he is and how faithful and loving and kind and caring he is and how in his providential care he will lead his people to promised land. For he desires the salvation of everyone. And so God has the people in the Old Testament times, raise up monuments that speak of their history, his history, his story in their lives. So they might, other people might come to want to know who this God is. So what are some of the modern day monuments that God erects for us or that we erect well, we're going to be talking about a few of those this next few weeks. Just off the top of my head, I think of the cross as a monument. Although if you go to Jerusalem, you won't find a cross. Well, you'll find lots of crosses, but not the one that Christ was crucified on. But the cross is a monument, isn't it? And certainly the empty tomb, maybe the stone. Uh, the stone reminds us that the tomb was empty. That's a monument. What a story that has to tell. I think we can also say a monument might be the Lord's Supper. It is a meal of remembrance. But this morning I want to kind of focus on the monument known as the baptismal font, which right over there here in this church. But it's a monument, isn't it? And it tells a story. Our baptismal font, whatever you, whether it's in this church, another church, whatever, the baptismal font tells a story. It tells a story, you know, that isn't really always very nice to focus on. I mean, because it's, 
It's a monument that speaks of corruption, greed, pride, prejudice, racism, rebellion, idolatry, and yes, even death. It speaks about me that way. It speaks about you like that. It reminds, the baptismal font as a monument reminds us that we are all born corrupt in our sin, that we are by nature greedy, prideful, filled with prejudice, rebellious, racist, that we place other things as gods in our life, and that because of the wages of our sin, we're going to experience death. Sometimes it's a story I wish I could live without. It's one that I wish I could erase sometimes and say, God, I'm not really that bad, am I? No. The monument, the baptismal font says otherwise. Because at that monument, I needed to die. We needed to die in that monument. As we were baptized, we died in Jesus' death and we rose anew. That's what happens in baptism. You die and you rise to newness of life. And so it is, in some ways, a monument of shame for us. But it's also a monument that testifies to our salvation. It's a monument that testifies to our salvation because we went from slavery to seeing Jesus as our Savior, not only seeing Him as our Savior, but He is our Savior. We went from being an orphan without any connection to the family of God, to now being adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters in his family. We went from being cursed and condemned under sin, sentenced to eternal damnation, to now having the promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation, eternity, life and eternity with our Lord. Yes, we went from death to life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what that monument, the baptismal font, represents. Whenever we look at it, it reminds us that once we were people who lived in a desert, so to speak, a spiritual desert, but God in his faithfulness and love for us brought us into the land of flowing with milk and honey. We had to pass through the waters of holy baptism to get into that land, but he did it for us. It's like he parted the waters, and here we are. We abide in the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey, where God's love and grace reigns supreme. What a monument. Maybe you've heard about the guy named John. Not this John, <laughs> sorry. Not John who's running the camera. I'm not talking about him. I often pick on John, and I apologize for that. And, but he gives it back sometimes. But anyways, another John. Maybe you've heard about a guy named John who had a horrible memory. And one day, John ran into a friend who he hadn't seen for a long time. And he, and he greeted his friend, and he said, Hey, Bill, do you remember that I used to have a really bad memory? And Bill said, Yes, I, I actually do remember that you had quite a bad memory. And John said, Well, you know what? I don't have that bad memory anymore. I went to a seminar, and I've now learned how to have a wonderful memory. And Bill responded by saying, Well, that's great. What was the name of the seminar? Well, John said, just wait a minute. My wife was with me. I'll ask her. And so he turned to his wife and looked at her for a moment, and then he turned back to Bill, and he said, Bill, um, what's the name of a flower with a long stem and thorns and has a red bloom? Do you mean a, a rose? Bill answered. 
or, or, or John answered. I'm getting my names all mixed up here. Bill answered. <laughs> so let me go back here again. So Bill says, what's a red flower with thorns on it? Which his friend said, Rose? A rose? Are you talking about a rose? I said, yeah, that's it. Hey, Rose, do you remember the name of the seminar that we went to? Now, how did you like that? I even messed up my own memory, just so you could see how bad of a memory it is. I was really probably telling a story about myself, because I'm terrible at remembering names. I have to often say to Sandra, what was that? Who is that? But you see, we all have bad memories, don't we? You just got a good taste of my bad memory. And I even have the script right in front of me. But you know, we're forgetful people. And one of the reasons why we need monuments is because we are forgetful. That's why we have monuments as a nation, as a city. And quite honestly, if I probably walked into your home, I'd find that you have a monument or two in your own home. Things that just remind you of wonderful events in your life, maybe some not-so-wonderful memories in your life. Or monuments in memory of God and what he's done for you. Like maybe a baptismal candle or something like that. But God gives us monuments too. Like the baptismal font. Like the cross. Like the stone. Like the communion table. He gives us these monuments so that we would always remember. That we would always remember that yes, first and foremost, as we look at ourselves, that we're sinners. But then ultimately to direct our eyes to the cross of Christ, to the empty tomb, to the baptismal font, to the Lord's Supper, to remind us and to assure us that he is a loving and faithful God who loves us so much that he sent Jesus to be our Savior, who loves us so much that, he over, that through his Savior our sins are forgiven and we have an eternal relationship with him. Yes, monuments, they have a lesson, a story to tell. And when it comes to God's monuments, it's a good story. It's an eternal story. Monumental lessons? Indeed. Join me next week for another one as we focus on another sermon on monumental lessons. Amen.